Well, we're going to be in Luke chapter 18, Lord willing. Is that something up there? Yeah, all things written about me will be fulfilled. I should have put must be fulfilled. Uh, the verse that we're starting off with, it's actually a very short passage. So, so I didn't want to give you a short passage. So I decided we're going to go through the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation. I thought you'd enjoy that. And then we're going to do the Lord's Supper afterwards. So we'll be out by three in the morning, three in tomorrow, this afternoon, I hope. No, I'm kidding. I'm hoping I can go through this quickly. But that's famous last words. I, I said something about I said something about I've got four and a half pages here and Heavenly said, Well that's nothing. My father always has nine. I thought, Wow, well you guys are getting off easy. Easy. Yeah. So uh, don't go south, man. Those guys they believe in preaching down there, you know. <laughs> so thank you for leading us in prayer, Les. Uh, the question today is was the crucifixion an accident of history? You hear some teachers say, Well, Jesus offended so many people that that's the reason he was killed or, or the plan was never for Jesus to die or that uh, they didn't understand how, how that, that could have worked out that way, that it wasn't supposed to be. Jesus may have gone too far. Uh, and we're, we're, we're still continuing. The, we did verse 30 just before this last Sunday. So in verse 31, it says, He took unto him his twelve. Now I'm assuming it means he took them aside. And he said unto them, we go up, behold, we go up to Jerusalem. This is going to be his, he knows this is his last trip to Jerusalem. He knows that when he gets there, they're going to kill him. And he says, behold, we go up to Jerusalem. And I, I, I've highlighted that in yellow. That's not in the Bible. I just did that to emphasize both to me and to you what I want to emphasize. And all things that were written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles and shall be mocked and spitefully entreated and spitted on. Now, I want to pause just for a moment, which is this is a rabbit hole, a missler rabbit hole. But he said he included verse Luke, the Holy Spirit, really included verse 32 to emphasize the fact that not only did the Jews kill Jesus, but the Gentiles killed Jesus as well. And, you know, in, in early church history, anti-Semitism cropped up because the Christians started the Christian Gentiles started blaming the Jews for the for killing Jesus Christ. Now the point of this entire sermon today, and the point of the entire Bible, was that it was in the plan of God for Jesus to come, be rejected, and crucified. God, God didn't just allow it to happen. He, he engineered it, if you will. But you can't just blame the Jews. You have to also, if you want to blame someone, you really have to blame yourselves because he came for all of our sins. And I know Chuck Smith used to say, if you want to blame somebody for the death of Jesus Christ, blame me because he went to the cross for my sins. And that's true. That's true for all of us. That's not really the point of this message. Nonetheless, it's an interesting interesting little rabbit hole. And they shall scourge him, whip him, uh, and put him to death. Jesus, at this point, does not say nail him to a cross, uh, but, but that was the common method of execution of criminals while Rome was in control of Israel. And the third day he shall rise again. And they understood none of these things. And this saying was hid from them. Now, I want to say, why didn't they understand? You know, why didn't they get it? Uh, wh why not? And uh, one answer is the Holy Spirit hid it from their eyes. So, I mean, you really can't blame them too much, can you? Uh, you also can't blame them too much because they didn't have a Bible. Almost everyone in here has a Bible. And if you don't have one, there's one in the pew right in front of you. And if you don't have, if you don't have that, you can find 100 translations on your cell phone. So we can't say we didn't know, Lord, you know. But they didn't understand it. They didn't get it. And what I find fascinating here is when you get up all the way into Luke 24, which we're not there yet, 
And he said he was on the Emmaus Road with a couple of disciples who were all depressed because Jesus died. Now the body's missing, and they don't know about it. They don't know what's going on, you know. And this is Jesus talking to the two uh, apostles, no, two disciples, two followers on the Emmaus Road. He said, "Oh fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken." That could be written to us, couldn't it? O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. That must have been quite quite, quite a uh, Bible study. You know, the point is they should have known. Jesus sat down outside of Bethany and he wept over Jerusalem because they said, you should have known. You should have known. I'll show you the prophecy. They actually gave him the day that the Messiah would present himself as the Messiah of Israel. Jesus, uh, Daniel was even given by the angel Gabriel the day, the date of Jesus's return. But they still didn't recognize him. It's really sad. From the first book of the Bible until the very last page of the Bible, that's where we're going to go. We're actually not going to. We're going to go from the first book. We're not going to go from the first page of the Bible because it really doesn't begin until chapter 3 where we start talking about a Messiah because the world wasn't fallen until we get to chapter 3. Nonetheless, we're going to go from Genesis all the way to Revelation if that clock doesn't abuse me too badly here. Uh, go all the way back to Genesis chapter 15. I'm sorry, chapter 3 and verse 15. Man, the man and the woman have fallen in the garden. God has come and sought them out, and he's now applying judgment to them. And he's speaking to the serpent. And he said to the serpent, I will put enmity. It means a state of war between thee and the woman. Why does it seem that the world hates women? Because the world hates women. And the world hates women because Satan is the god of this world. And you go all over our world. Women are abused and mistreated. There's a war on between the forces of good and the forces of evil. And some of the pawns in that war are the women. And they always fare the worst in this war. And I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed, the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And so we've got two worlds going now right now. We've got believers and unbelievers, and there's a war between those two. That state of enmity has existed ever since Genesis chapter 3. And it shall bruise thy head, the seed of the woman shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. It's pretty vague. It doesn't really tell you that the Messiah is going to come and be killed, does it? But it's a start. It's a start. That's the first mention of the Messiah. A lot of women in Israel had wished they could be the mother of the Messiah. Now the word there, bruise, is a primitive root. Properly means to gape. If you can picture... A serpent with his mouth wide, just getting ready to bite you, and he gapes his mouth wide open and covers you, getting ready to strike. That's, that's the picture of that verb. Figuratively, to overwhelm, to break, bruise, or cover. Now, granted, this isn't the clearest passage in the world about a suffering Messiah, but enmity is a state of warfare, and clearly driving nails into Jesus' feet bruised him. So he will bruise thy heel. You see what I'm saying? Thou shalt bruise his heel. Now that Roman that got ready to nail those nails in Jesus' feet had to get a helper, and that helper had to open his hands, gape his hands open, and cover his, pull his two feet together and hold them while another Roman drove the nails in. And you get the picture of that Hebrew word, shuf, 
very, very clear picture of it. You also get a picture of it uh, that the venomous bite of the serpent is broken in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'm going to be doing that, bouncing back and forth between the Old Testament and the New Testament, where, where Isaiah, I'm sorry, where Paul, writing to the 1 Corinthians, says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? You know, the lost world dies. They have no hope. You know, you'll never see your loved ones again. Even if you go to hell with them, you'll never see them again. That, that's the sad point. You have no hope. But we who are Christians have a hope. And that, that pulled the stinger right out of death. The fact that, you know, my mother died in 1998, but I know I'll see her again. See, my father died in 1972. I know I'll see well, I think I'll see him again. I don't know a question about that, but uh, he, he, I don't know. I will just, we'll just bet on it. My sister and when, I, when we pass, we'll all be together. This is the point. Families will be together. It'll be a great reunion. See, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But see, Jesus broke the power of sin in our lives. But thanks be to God, which gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there is a number of pictures in the Old Testament, not the least of which, and I, I wanted to wade down into the issue of the blood, tracing the blood throughout the entire Old Testament, but I figured that'd be better in a seminary class and not on a Sunday morning when we're, we're limited in time. So I'm going to skip the whole scarlet thread, they call it, the trail of blood all the way through the Old Testament, all the way up to the New Testament, all the way up to Revelation where it says the saints, the tribulation saints have washed their sins in the blood of the Messiah. Pretty cool, isn't it? starts all the way back in the garden. I said I wasn't going to preach on this, didn't I? Whoops. started all the way back in the garden where, where God came along and skinned an animal. Well, I hope he killed it before he skinned it and made coats of skin and taught to them animal sacrifice. And you can trace that all the way through, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to skip all the way up to Genesis chapter 22 and verse 8, where Abraham is told to take his son, his only son, the one he waited 100 years for. Uh, why don't I take the other one? No, no, take this one. You know, and God told him to walk three days up to a place where God wanted him to be. And they found a mountain. And up on that mountain, Abraham was told to build an altar. And he built an altar and he piled it high with wood. And he was told to take his son and bind his son up. And take his knife and slay his son. Offer his son as a burnt sacrifice. A hundred years he waited for this kid to be born. And now he wants him to offer his son. And Abraham followed through. Now, there's a whole argument about why Abraham did that and what was going on there, but, the, but my understanding is he actually believed that even if he killed his son, that God would raise him up from the dead. Abraham was not concerned that he would lose his son. At least that's what I've been taught. I don't know if there's proof of that in the Bible or not. It might just be conjecture. But just about the time before he started binding up his son, Isaac said, uh, Dad, where's the offering? You know? And Abraham turned him around, bound up his hands. And Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. Abraham tied him up and put him on the altar. Probably an 18 or 20 year old young man. And just as he was getting ready to slay him, you know, the angel stayed the hand of Abraham and said, do him no harm. And they looked in a ram, a male sheep was found in the thicket. And they took that sheep and they offered it in the place of his son substitutionary atonement Jesus dying for us what a picture that is you know I'm going to say 1,900 let's just say 2,000 years later 
Jesus came to be baptized. And John the Baptist looked up and saw Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. In John chapter 1 and verse 29. And it's not just behold the Lamb, it's behold the Arnos, the little Passover Lamb. Behold the little Lamb of God, God's chosen one. It's an amazing story. Now, God stopped Abraham from killing his son Isaac, and they, they both offered the lamb, did their burnt offering, and then they started back down the hill. And Abraham said these words. I want you to see these. Oh, one click didn't work. And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh, which means God will provide. Jehovah-Jireh. Anytime you think you need help, Anytime you're not sure how you're going to get through the day, just say the Hebrew words, Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. And then he said this, as it is said to this day, so that, that statement had been carried along all those many years, God will provide, and it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. That was in 1996 B.C. Abraham was stopped from killing his son Isaac. But Abraham understood that he was doing a model, a picture, an example. He was acting out a scene to where God would one day offer his own son as a sacrifice. But not just as a sacrifice, but as a sacrifice on that very mountain. There's no accidents with God. So 900 years later, in 1000 BC, David picked this same mountain for his city, the city of David. It's now called Jerusalem. So all of a sudden, a thousand years later, Jerusalem becomes the center of Israel. And then, another thousand, thirty-two years later, Jesus is crucified on the same hill where Abraham offered his son. Now there are those that would say that's a coincidence. Well, it is a coincidence, but it's a God-ordained coincidence. It's a coincidence. I want to go back to David's time, if you don't mind. I'm going to go back to the Psalms. And Psalm 16.10, I'm, I'm just pulling out points. Points that prove to you that from Genesis all the way to Revelation, God's plan was for the Messiah to come and be sacrificed. Now, what the Jews didn't understand is God was sending his son twice. Once as a sacrifice and the second time as a king. And David writes, for that will not leave my soul in hell. The word, the word that David wrote was Sheol, which means the abode of the dead or the grave. For that will not leave my soul in the grave. My will not, thou will not leave my soul in the abode of the dead. Neither wilt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. Well, David was buried and his body rotted. This wasn't about David. It was about Jesus. David also wrote in Psalm 22, which actually was the psalm that convinced me. I mean, I was taught like many of you. I went to public schools. Even in the 50s, we said the Lord's Prayer. We said the Pledge of Allegiance. But at the same time, they taught me that the Bible was filled with errors, inconsistencies. You couldn't trust it, that it was a bunch of tribal sayings, and you couldn't believe anything about it. And yet, when I had a, a preacher take me through the 22nd Psalm, I realized that 1,000 years before Jesus was crucified, David wrote of that experience of being crucified. Not only was it 1,000 years before the crucifixion, it was 800 years before crucifixion was invented, at least that nature of crucifixion. 
The Romans developed it about 300 BC to where they started using a cross T and nailing their victims to a cross rather than tying their hands and let them just asphyxiate slowly. They used nails to hold them in place because it would hurt more and they put a little block of wood under their feet so they would suffer more, it would make them last a little bit longer. And they drove nails in their hands and feet. So if you read the uh, 20, 22nd Psalm, verse one, it'll, well, it has this whole introduction to it and then it says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in, that's 1000 BC. And in 32 AD, Jesus spoke from the cross about the ninth hour, cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Now, he was speaking the Hebrew that David spoke. And the people in that area did not speak Hebrew. And they actually said to one another, let's wait, he's calling for Elias. Let's see if Elias will come and save him. But he wasn't calling for Elias. He was speaking Hebrew, not Aramaic. And he was calling for God. My God, my God, lama, to what have thou forsaken me? It isn't that Jesus got confused up there on the cross. He knew what was he's up there for. He wanted to point to something. That's a whole nother sermon. I'm not going to do it right now. But the point is that Jesus was clear about why he was there. And he was pointing to something. And when he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, you'll find out that after he died, the graves were opened and dead were raised and the temple veil was torn and the Roman guard said, truly, this is the son of God. There are three evidence of why Jesus went to the cross, access to the Holy of Holies, the resurrection from the dead and faith through the proclamation that Jesus is the son of God, all as a proof to what hast thou forsaken me? That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I'm getting ahead of myself here. 1,000 years before, David prophesied that all they that see me will laugh at me and scorn. They shoot out their lip. They shake their head saying he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighteth in him. Matthew 27 tells us that they said to him, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. 1,032 years later, the event occurred. He saved others himself. He cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. Come down now and we'll believe you. I, I tell you, I don't think they'd like him if he did come down. Uh, he, it's not going to be the one they were hoping for. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Psalm 22, a thousand years before the cross, 800 years before nails, they pierced my hands and my feet. That, that's a theme that's going to, you're going to follow all the way through the Old Testament. Nailed to a cross 800 years before the process was even invented. That's like saying they electrocuted me in electric care 800 years before electricity was invented. All right. Psalm 22. It's all the same psalm. It's all the same psalm. The literal rendering of what it was like to be crucified. And when I saw the accuracy of this prophecy, I realized there are things in the Bible that you can believe. You can believe this book. I am poured out like water dehydration, and all my bones are out of joint. The dislocation of when that, when that cross slaps down into that hole, your shoulders are dislocated. My heart is like wax. It's melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. That's a broken clay pot. And my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. That has brought me into the dust of death. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. David is describing the physical realities of dying while being nailed to this cross. To me, it's unbelievable. For dogs have compassed me about, a typical Jewish uh, reference to Gentiles, 
The assembly of the wicked is talking about the leadership of Israel. Uh, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. Psalm 22. Let me back. Did I skip that? I, I guess I skipped a New Testament reference to that. Matthew will tell you that the Romans were gathered around him to keep anyone from interfering, and the Jewish leadership, they're the ones shouting out all these curses at him. David predicted both Jews and Gentiles would be there. I will declare thy name, in Psalm 22, verse 22, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. Now, wait a minute, I thought you were dying. I thought you were brought to the dust of death. I thought you were pierced and dying on a cross. You are, and you died, but I still will declare thine, I will thy name, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. David even spoke of his resurrection after the crucifixion. A seed shall serve him. That's us. We're the seed of the birth, the rebirth of the Lord Jesus Christ. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born. Those people that believed in Jesus on that day shared it with the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. And now it's up to us. Our job is to share it with the next generation. We're the ones. If we don't do it, the process stops. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He's not a curse word. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is God's chosen one for us to take our place and to suffer and to pay the penalty for our sin. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born. Future generations are depending on you and me that he had done this. That's what we're doing right here. A remnant of Jews will believe and will share their faith with people not yet born. Now, no one does this better. No one tells this story better than Isaiah. And truly, all I'm going to do is read him. Uh, they call him the Prince of Pre Preachers, and there's a reason for that. I, I haven't picked all of it, but it's an amazing passage of Scripture. Speaking of the Messiah, he is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This is Jesus he's writing about. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him smitten, I'm sorry, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Amazing passage of Scripture. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Iniquity is the twisted nature that sin leaves us in. It's not so much talking about the rebellion of sin, but the fact that once we do sin, it leaves us broken. And the Lord laid our brokenness on Jesus Christ. And he suffered for our brokenness. So that when I cried to Jesus in 1971, to forgive me of my sins and save me, he began from that point forward restoring me and undoing the wickedness that I had done and the results of that, the iniquity, the twisted nature that he put in me. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb before the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. And he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare, this is Isaiah still, who shall declare his generation? Who's going to stand up for those people? For he was cut off. Oh, wait a minute, Isaiah. Isaiah wrote in 800 B.C., 800 
BC, 800 years before Jesus was born. You know, if you think about that for a minute, you know, they were just a bunch of crazy people running around in England 800 years ago. 800 years is a long time. He was cut off. Wait a minute, our Messiah is going to be killed? He was cut off out of the land of the living. Yeah, it sounds like he's going to be killed. For the transgression, why? For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked. He did too. He made his dying with the wicked because on either side of him were two criminals. He was crucified as a criminal, with criminals. And with the rich in his death, in his burial, he had a rich man's tomb. 800 years before the event. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth, that this should be a new verse. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. That's us. He shall prolong his days. That's the resurrection. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. When, when God looks at you and sees that Jesus is your, taking your place, he is satisfied. He's satisfied. You are as welcome after you receive Christ, after the Holy Spirit has regenerated you, after you've been born again, you are as welcome in the presence of God as is Jesus Christ. You don't have to tiptoe around heaven. God's looking forward for you walking in the door. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. The knowledge of Jesus Christ shall my righteous servant justify men. And justify means you're declared not guilty. If you're saved, you've been justified. That means God has held your trial. He saw that Jesus died for your sins and your trial is over. You are not guilty. You are guilty, but your guilt was laid on Jesus. And now when he looks at you, he sees Jesus. And he says, she's not guilty. He's not guilty. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. For he shall bear their sins. Now Daniel got a whole thing. Uh, this was 200 years later. They're, he's in Babylon. They've been carried off in captivity. They think God has abandoned them. And again, I'm just going to read it. Uh, this, this is where the angel Gabriel puts out the timeline for when the Messiah will come. And I could have skipped verse 24, but this is called the prophecy of the 70 weeks. So I left that verse in, even though it's a little tedious, I know, to go through all the scripture. 70 weeks are determined upon thy people. Now, Daniel's trying to figure out what's going to happen to his people in the, in the end. I mean, he wants to know what's going to happen to Israel. And he realized through reading another prophet, and for the life of me, I can't remember who it was. He was reading, but I want to say it was Ezekiel. Uh, that the Babylonian captivity would only be 70 years and it was drawing to a close and Daniel began to fast and to pray to try to find out what's next. Now Daniel's an old man by now. He'd been in Babylon 70 years. 70 weeks are determined upon thy people. Now, if you're into prophecy, you know that a week is actually seven years. So 77s are 490 years. Are determined upon thy people, upon the holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in the everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. 490 years. Yeah, okay. 490 years from when Israel returned 
did not bring in everlasting righteousness. So you think, well, that's, that's, that's a bummer. It's not right. But verse 25 sort of explains it. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem, there were actually three, and you've got to pick which one it is, and I'm not going to go into that. But they know the date of this commandment. Uh, they know the date of this commandment. Again, this is not the purpose of this message. Uh, they know the date it began. So they know if they just counted the right number of, of, of years, they would know the date. And depending on which commentator you listen to, it works out to the date exactly. And if my memory is correct, then I didn't research any of this from my old notes. It was April the 14th. Uh, 32 A.D., but I'm not, I'm not sure I'm right about that. Know therefore and understand now, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks, three score and two weeks. The streets shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And you got, you got to do a little math here. And then after three, score, after three score and two weeks, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of that Prince, now let me stop right there, and the Messiah will be cut off. The word is karat in the, in the Hebrew, which means executed for capital crime. Jesus was executed for capital crime. All right. Now, if you do the math, you'll find out that there's a missing week. And, and the clock stops here. And the missing week is the last week uh, that we call, the last seven years that we call the tribulation. So w when you see the 490 weeks in the beginning, it's now 489 weeks and there's a week meeting. Uh, a week missing. I don't want to do that. I, I, I would do that in a PowerPoint if I did it. But not for himself. He'll be cut off. He'll be executed for a capital crime, but not for himself. Wait a minute. How could they not know the Messiah would, not, would be killed? How could they not know this? That's what Jesus is asking outside of Bethany. How could you not know when I was going to come? I gave you the date. I told you I would be killed. How can you not understand these verses? You know. And as I was thinking about this sermon this week, I thought, boy, what's he going to say to us? <laughs> what are we missing? You know, what are we missing? We got it all in writing right in front of us. What are we missing? You know, they had to go, they had to go to synagogue. They had to go to the temple. And then you got to hope that the priest would read the right scripture. That's what you're doing right now. You hope your preacher's reading the right scripture, right? You got to go to a church where the, the preacher's reading the right scripture. Because the preacher's in, in James and John's day, in Peter's day, they didn't like these passages. They didn't read them. It wasn't fun. It wasn't a Messiah riding in on a white horse and conquering Rome. They liked those passages. That was uplifting and helpful, but they skipped these passages, the painful and difficult ones. And they did them a great disservice because no one recognized Jesus when he came. Anyway, after the number of weeks, he'll be cut off, but not for himself. He'll be cut off for us, right? And the people of the prince that shall come, that's Titus of the Roman Legion, and shall destroy the city. That happened in AD 70. And the end of your people, talking to Daniel, the end of your people shall be with a flood. That means judgment. You'll be washed all over the world. And unto the end, until that last week starts again, unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. There's your description of Israel for the last 2,000 years, desolations are determined. I could go on with that, but I'm not. I'm skipping to Zechariah, another 200 years closer to Jesus. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications, and they look upon me, Jesus, whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one that mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that in bitterness for his firstborn. And in that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem. 
What's going to happen when the window opens and Jesus raptures us out of here and there's seven years of tribulation and then the world looks up and sees Jesus coming and they'll know that all this crazy Jesus people were right and they were wrong. This is what's going to happen. There should be a great morning in Jerusalem as the morning of a, I can't say that word, in the Valley of Megiddo. Not even going to try. Skip all the way up to Revelation. Now, there were a lot of prophecies that spoke of peace and healing and love, and God is a God of love. He is. He loved us enough to send His Son to take our sins to that cross. But they didn't understand that the Messiah would come twice. He came once for our sins. He's going to come again to bring righteousness to the earth. The very last book of the Bible, in the first chapter, we're told that this same Jesus will return. This next time won't be in weakness, but it'll be in power. He'll come victorious as King of kings and Lord of lords. And the whole earth will be terrified of him. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, that's Israel, and the Gentiles, whose sin put him on the cross, and all the kindreds, that always bothers me, all the families of the earth shall wail because of him. If you get in older cultures, you'll find that when someone dies, people begin to wail out loud. And that's what it's talking about. It's talking about when your aunts and uncles, nieces and nephews realize that they didn't get the message. They didn't understand and they're doomed. And all the kindreds, all the families of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Do I have this? Yeah, I do in the next verse. I want sure I included it. Revelation chapter 22, the last page of your Bible, eh, unless you have a, you know, some type of a concordance in the back. Um, verse 12, last two chapters are actually the entrance into eternity future after the tribulation, after the millennium. We're not going to teach you all that now. Jesus warning us, behold, I come quickly. And again, I would remind you, quickly didn't mean soon. It means suddenly. All right. Behold, I come suddenly. My reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. I'm the Alpha. I started it all. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And God spoke and said, let there be light. And there was light. I am the Alpha. I'm the creator God of the universe. And I am the Omega, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. I've started it, and I'm going to end it. The beginning and the end. The first and the last. Oh, I have more. I didn't realize. I just got so carried away with this playing around. And I, Jesus, have sent my angel. That's a messenger. I sent my messenger to testify unto you these things to the churches. I am the root and offspring of David. And the bright and morning star and the spirit and the bride say, come. Last invitation in the Bible. The last invitation in the Bible. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Father, we thank you for this time, this opportunity to cruise through your scriptures beginning to end. And Father, we just ask that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper now, that we say deeply in our hearts, we ask you, Lord, am I missing something?
Am I missing something that you have planned for my life? Am I leaving anything undone? And Father, my prayer is that you will speak to your people and that we will see the path that you have for us going forward and that we will step up and step out on the path you've called us to lead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.